How long have we been here? A week? Two weeks? What does it feel like? <laughs> a lot has happened in a short period of time. It's amazing the capacity of our minds. So I want to honor you for your, the earnestness of your effort so far. And I want to express how, in, how much joy it's been for me to get to meet you in these groups. So I think we've each seen half, half of the group, and I look forward to the next two days to you know, experience what's happening. Tonight, or actually over the, nec the next two evenings, I want to articulate some of the nuances of cultivating samadhi. And tonight, I'll specifically address the challenges. No matter how you slice it, a mind that can gather itself in concentration, it just has a lot going for it. William, William James believed that the capacity to bring our wandering attention back and back over and over again is the foundation of our skillful judgment, our moral character, and our will. And the other side of that, he believed that an untamed wild mind is the source of chaos in the world. And for centuries, Christian contemplatives have considered that the wandering mind is the devil's workshop. Maybe you've been in that workshop today for a little bit. And our Buddhist practice has long recognized that a distracted mind will lead to all kinds of mental afflictions and challenges, oftentimes resulting in unskillful behaviors. This from the Buddha. It's always good to start with the Buddha. There are five detrimental things that lead to the decay and disappearance of the true Dhamma. What are the five? Here the monks, the nuns, the male lay, the male lay followers, the female lay followers dwell without reverence and deference towards the teacher, towards the Dhamma, towards the Sangha, towards the training, and without reverence and deference towards Samadhi. These are the five detrimental things that lead to the decay and disappearance of the true Dhamma. That last one, without reverence and deference towards samadhi. I mean, lumped in with all the warnings about the end of the Dhamma, apocalyptic. So, as you've been hearing this week, the Buddha always emphasized samadhi. It is shot through the Pali Canon and all the commentaries. You can't read very far uh, without references to the, to the benefits of samadhi. Uh, William James, on a positive note, um, 
tie basic concentration to the origin of genius. He maintained that all geniuses had the uncommon ability to, to sustain voluntary attention where they wanted and for as long as they wanted. And if you think about it, in any field, Mozart, music, Einstein in physics, the Williams sisters in tennis, Picasso in art, Edison in inventing, Ted Williams hitting a baseball, all of them shared the capacity to focus their attention with great clarity for considerable periods of time. So what if that ability to gather attention at higher and higher levels is what separates us from genius? What if that's the case? I like to frame this practice as a virtuous cycle. Oftentimes we get in so deep we start wondering, well, what in the world am I doing? You know, why am I here? Um, you know what a vicious cycle is. Out of some agitated state of mind, you say or do something that makes the situation worse. We've all been there. Then, out of that, out of that more agitated situation, there's more pressure. We then say and do something that makes it even worse. The mind narrows down, contracts, the vicious cycle. But what your practice about here is absolutely the opposite. It's a virtuous cycle. With the foundation of ethical thought, speech, and action, working to refine that, to clean things up a little bit. It affects the ability of our mind, affects the ability of, of the mind to settle a little deeper, to gather a little bit more out of some refining of the ethics. And out of that, there is this natural wisdom, insights begin to flow, understandings, we get some we get some uh, clear ideas into the relationships in our, in our life, the big spiritual issues, and, and those insights, that wisdom, then informs our thought, speech, and action some more. Things get clearer. Life gets more peaceful. Out of that more managed, peaceful life, the mind is able to relax. It inclines to deeper and deeper states of rest, and concentration, and out of that, even deeper insights come. That's the practice that you're doing. You're all involved in the virtuous cycle. So if we're, if we're to have traction in this virtuous cycle, the stability and gathering of the mind is one of the critical aspects from the Buddha again. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is corrupted by adventitious defilements. Adventitious meaning opportunistic or sneaky in a, in a way. 
The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for him, there is no mental development. But don't worry, you are not uninstructed worldlings. You're on your way. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is free from adventitious defilements. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for him, there is mental development. In that passage, mental development refers to deep concentration, samadhi. The poor, uninstructed worldling doesn't quite get it, doesn't see the benefit. Sadly, the mind of the uninstructed worldling isn't settled quite enough to, to experience that inherent luminosity. And because they don't experience it, they don't fully appreciate the possibilities. They unfortunately live with a mind that oscillates somewhere between agitation and dullness, back and forth. The deep mind, by its very nature, it, it isn't dark, it's not murky, it's not dull or turbulent. Its essential character, the essential character of the deep mind is light, is brightness. It's filled with a shining, open, non-conceptual intelligence and a very deep tranquility. This natural mind knows it's unruffled. And that's our birthright. But as the Buddha said, this natural perfected mind is visited by these adventitious energies. And there lies the challenge for our spiritual practice. But what, what's important to remember as we begin to talk about these energies tonight, yes, they obscure the beauty of this radiant mind that exists, that is our birthright. But these energies are not inherent in that mind. They're just opportunistic visitors. They pass through causing whatever they cause, and you've visited with some of them today, I'm sure. But they're not intrinsic to the fabric of the mind. And for sure, they muddle the mind. Seeing clearly becomes difficult. You know, it's much like out driving in weather like we're having now. You know, you get behind a truck after it's snowed and all the grit and mud and everything is thrown up on the windshield and the windshield wipers are going, the visibility's a little shaky. But that windshield, like our mind, is still perfectly clear once that mud, the grit, the snow, the water, etc., is cleared away. The windshield's not affected. I'd like to share a poem from Rumi. It's called, A Goal, Kneel, a Goal Kneels. Uh, and a few words of uh, explanation for some of, the, uh, some of the phraseology might be helpful. Goal, G-O-A-L, is an old English word for obstacle. 
And there's a word in this poem, Joseph's, and it's not some guy named Joseph. It's, it's a cloak of many colors worn by women. And there's, a, there's a, also a mention in there of the, uh, uh, the cave of seven sleepers, which is an old Christian myth. Maybe some of you have heard of it, but it, it takes place, the myth takes place in about the year 250. And there are these uh, seven Christians who are scheduled to go, uh, to go on trial for practicing their religion the next day. Um, and generally the outcomes of such trial by the Romans weren't very pretty. So they got together and they went up into this cave the night before to pray together and they went way back into the cave. Well, the Romans got, got word of this. Uh, they knew they were up there. They figured they were practicing their religion. So the heck with the trial. They went up there and they walled them in. Okay. About 125 years later, as the myth goes, uh, some shepherd was looking for a place to house the sheep in bad weather. So he knocks down this wall that he sees. And sure enough, there they are, still alive. They had fallen asleep. And they only thought that they had slept one night. That's the background. Now the poem. The inner being of a human, the inner being of a human being is a jungle. Sometimes wolves dominate, sometimes wild hogs. Be wary when you breathe. At one moment, gentle, generous qualities, like Joseph's, pass from one nature to another. The next moment, vicious qualities move in hidden ways. Wisdom slips for a while into an ox. A restless, recalcitrant horse suddenly becomes obedient and smooth-gated. A bear begins to dance. A goal kneels. Human consciousness goes into a dog, and that dog becomes a shepherd or a hunter. In the cave of the seven sleepers, even the dogs were seekers. At every moment, a new species rises in the chest, now a demon, now an angel, now a wild animal. There are also those in this amazing jungle who can absorb you into their own surrender. If you have to stalk and steal something, steal from them. So everything's available when we sit quietly and pay attention. The whole universe is revealed. And this poem uh, suggests that there, that there are mythical archetypical narratives that are woven directly into the fabric of our, of our body, into our being, and that they can appear at any time. Rumi's sensibilities in this poem are very much, very much in line with the Buddha's. That everything is revealed within this fathom-long body, if we just pay attention. And the Buddha learned that from his own experience of sitting and watching this body, heart, mind, and the entire creation open to him. 
Carl Jung theorized that there could actually be a physical neural substrate, a physical neural substrate located in the body that, came, that, that contains a form of archetypal consciousness, that all that was ever known and felt, all that was ever known and felt by humankind is in our physical bodies. Think about that one. Not only the experience of this lifetime embedded in us, but all the experience and wisdom of humanity. And it's said by some teachers that the sixth stage of meditative absorption, the second immaterial jhana, very highly concentrated, very, very subtle. It's known as the sphere of unlimited consciousness. That a person having cultivated this jhana to its full fruition has the capacity to access all acts of consciousness for all time. That every act of consciousness, consciousness that ever existed is equally available. All conversations that were ever held, all thoughts ever thought are accessible from this very deep state of concentration. The possibilities are limitless if you let your mind kind of move with that. Imagine visiting the thoughts of Gandhi when he laid down on, on the railroad tracks in front of the train. What was he thinking? Or imagine eavesdropping on your ancestors a hundred generations ago. What were those conversations like? Or how about listening to a Dharma talk of the Buddha? Not too shabby. Deepama, some of you might have known something about her, a gentle, legendary practitioner and teacher and very dear to uh, a number of the Western teachers, of uh, today's Western teachers, uh, purportedly had that level of concentration and that she had those abilities. The capacity of the mind uh, through samadhi is vast. It cannot be underestimated. So retreats like this, we sit, we walk, we sit, we walk, pretty simple. We're training our organism to relax more fully, more deeply. At the same time, we're learning to gather the mind to penetrate into the depths of our experience. But as Rumi's poem pointed out, not all that arises out of this soup of consciousness is pleasant all the time. At every moment, a new species rises in the, in the chest, now a demon, now an angel, now a wild animal. We just don't know. We can't predict what the next thing is. And we can't control it. And some of these risings are definitely a challenge. The difficult states of mind that we, that we often get lost in, identified with these, these adventitious visitors, are also referred to as the hindrances. Marcia spoke about, about them last night to some degree. 
There are five broad categories of them. It's the wanting mind, the not wanting mind, the restless mind, the sleepy mind, and the doubting mind. This is really where the rubber meets the road with practice. And your, and your relationship to these energies are central to a fulfilled and happy life and central to a, a fruitful spiritual practice. And learning to work with and make peace with these energies, uh, it, it literally affects everything. I'm going to read a piece from Bhante Gunarantana. For those of you who don't know who he is, he's a monk. He's approaching 80. Uh, Sri Lankan monk. He has a, a monastery in West Virginia. He's been practicing since he's about 10. So you'll see a kind of, um, let's just say, a very refined attitude in what he has to say about these visitors. We move towards concentration slowly, primarily by weakening certain bothersome factors in the mind and putting them in, quote unquote, suspension. These things to be weakened are just little things, really. Things like terror and anxiety and rage, greed, shame. Just little habits of the mind that are so deeply embedded we think they are natural, that they belong there, that they are somehow right, somehow accurate and appropriate responses to the world. Even further, we think they are us. We believe they are somehow embedded in our basic nature and we identify with them. Just little things, Bhantiji says. He's practiced a little bit. Well, in learning to cultivate samadhi, we're not talking about the permanent end uh, to these energies. And as Marcia said last night, they are weakened by samadhi. They're not eliminated. The complete uprooting of these energies uh, is possible. That's called awakening. But what we're looking for prior to that full awakening is just a temporary relaxation of them, a temporary dimming of their power. And the Pali word for hindrance is nivarana. And its literal translation is covering. It's also translated as that which hinders clear seeing. This, this covering, this hindering of your ability to see clearly implies a transparency. These energies are not as solid as they sometimes appear. When we get totally identified with them, they can appear pretty solid, but they're not. If you can bring a patient, spacious, kindly mindfulness, you'll discover that they're mostly ethereal, insubstantial, changing all the time. They're not really solid. So let's just briefly take a look at them um, and then we'll talk about some ways to work with them. First, the wanting energies, sensual desire, really big. Um, 
when the object of your sense, sen sensual desire comes along, you just really want it. Whether it's food, some material object, a person, and even lusting after that last great meditation you had back in uh, 1997. <laughs> you know, we want it. The wanting energies are interesting in that uh, they're, they're always, those energies are always moving outside us, here and there, grasping one, one place or another, this or that, very busy. And in meditation, it can be just as subtle as, as trying to lean into our experience, trying to make something happen that we want. Sometimes we can even feel it in our bodies or leaning forward a little bit. It's time to just bring them back, relax. Aversion energies are another uh, powerful set of energies. The opposite of the wanting mind, but very complementary in a way. The I don't want it mind. In, in, in that mind, we're trying to get rid of some undesirable situation. The unwanted, the unwanted bodily sensation, the unwanted sound, the unwanted smell, the unwanted difficult emotion, or the unwanted difficult person. We try to change the situation, suppress it, deny it, destroy it, or condemn it. Aversion can be as mild as that feeling you get up in the morning. It's like, think, it's just not right. You know, slightly distasteful, a little bit annoying, that, you know, getting up on the wrong side of the bed feeling. It's a mild form. Now, the heavier form, you know, it's anger. You max it out, and we've got rage. Aversion's a big tent. It also includes fear, shame, and guilt. They all have the common quality of pulling us away from our experience, contracting us back, contracting us from whatever conditions happen to be in play. That's the I don't want it mind. Sloth and torpor, great sounding words, love them, sloth, torpor. You almost don't have to say anything about them. It's a tired or lazy feeling, there's no energy uninspired. I mean, it, it could be caused by a life out of balance or just plain tiredness. A lot of you arrived here exhausted. At times you might notice that the mind is, is very calm and quiet, but there's no alertness. Got the calm thing going. It's right there, but the alertness is like, you know. Some of you have experienced that. And sometimes this tiredness is caused by resistance to some unpleasant emotion, possibly a subtle avoiding of feelings of loneliness or sorrow or emptiness or loss of control. Not being alive to what is happening is the, is the ground and foundation for sloth and torpor. In meditation, it manifests its sleepiness. In life, 
it can be kind of a sense of waiting for life to happen, you know, and really needing a real jolts of stimulation to feel alive. And if you happen to be an experienced junkie, um, which I guess I could classify myself in my, in my past, it takes a while to get adjusted to this, um, to these, the, the subtle movements of the mind, these subtle experiences. Um, and not just doze off in between the one big stimulation, dozing, the next big stimulation. It takes a little while to get used to that. Now, the fourth category of these coverings, generally called restlessness and worry, very familiar to, mo to most of us. The agitated mind, the hyperactive mind. You, know, you could be sitting at home, you sit down, you've got great intentions, I'm going to meditate now. Three minutes later, you pop up off, the, off, you know, off your cushion because you really have to clean the hamster cage. Or you just thought of that missing sock and your shorts in the dryer somewhere. And if you just looked in the corner, you'd get it. So there you go. That's that agitated mind. And the last covering, uh, in the most insidious of all, is doubt. Because it kind of creeps in the back door somehow. And it's very believable, it's very rational. You know, it's like, and it's usually, a barrage of thoughts. Oh, I think I'm wasting my time. I, I think these teachings are bogus. I heard this thing and th th these aren't right. And those teachers? Clueless. I, I'm watching them. I see how unmindful they are. In fact, one of them was sleeping up there. You know? And, well, this may work for some people, but I'm not one of them. You know, I'll go find something else. So when doubt's creeping around, the plug gets pulled. The energy gets flushed. The Buddha had, uh, he had an interesting simile where he compared water uh, with each of these, each of these energies, uh, with different kinds of water. Uh, to peering into, a, to, to seeking or desiring to, to peer into a bucket and get a clear, clean, accurate reflection of what you see. Well, when wanting or sensual desire is happening, it's like water that has dye in it. You know, you, can, you get a reflection, but it's wrong. It's off the mark. It's not, you got blue dye in there, everything's looking blue. Well, things aren't really blue. And he likened aversion to boiling water. That's kind of an obvious one. Well, the water's all boiling. You're not going to see anything. And sleepiness, sloth and torpor, I like this one. He likened that to real thick, gooey algae growing in there. You know, you look in there and it's, you just can't see anything. It's just all over the surface. There's no reflection. And restlessness and anxiety, he likened to wind blowing across the water. You know, your ability to see is very limited when there's restlessness and anxiety. You just can't, you're not getting an accurate reading of what's going on. And doubt, he likened doubt 
to water that's in the dark. Might be perfectly clear, but since your plug has been pulled, you don't you can't see anything. So all these energies have the common ability to cover the natural perfection of the mind. When they're active, clarity and serenity are impinged in one way or another. When I think about this simile, on the other hand, there is some, there is some good news. There's some possibilities. You know, the, the coloring, the dye can settle out. The boiling can stop, run out of fuel. The boiling stops. The water cools out. The moss or algae will die in its season. The wind eventually can abate. And there can be illumination. And the mind can settle and resolve itself. And in the end, the water can be clear again. The reflective essence is still there. The water has not been contaminated. It's just been covered or disturbed. I can remember early on in this practice, I used to think these kind of energies were that came up, they just had to be shoved aside. That, that, or my meditation wasn't going to be any good. In fact, it wasn't meditation when these things were up. It was something else. Get rid of them. But when, when I look back, and at some moment in there, um, there was the breakthrough where I really realized that these energies um, were an important part of the practice. Learning to be with them was a critical part of the practice. And that it wasn't some anomaly to my messed up, disturbed mind that these things were happening. That it's just, this is the way it's supposed to be. These things happen. It's natural. Everybody experiences these things. I mean, you can look at them in a positive light. You can look at them. These are educational energies. You can learn a great deal from them. If you, if you can meet them with a, with a soft acceptance and without too much resistance, all kinds of, um, all kinds of things can be revealed. Oh yeah, they're really, they, they can be really challenging and they can, throw, they can throw you for a tumble. But by learning to skillfully be with these energies, it's really the gateway to all the fruit in the practice. Now that being said, when we accent concentration practice like we're doing this week, it, it really call, it calls forth your, the artistry of your practice. We spoke about this in several of the groups today. So what do you do when one of these energies is pretty powerful and it comes up and there it is, where, where the instructions are to um, just kind of let go, you know, be with it, let go, come back to the Anapana spot. But what do you do when these, when these things are powerful? Well, when one of these energies is powerful, um, it requires our full attention, kindness, and care. We need to turn toward it directly. 
And on the other hand, a lot of these energies are very low, low, low wattage things and that they can be gently put aside. You know, those that are rootless, that don't have much power, uh, they can be put aside for the time being. Knowing the difference is the artistry, you know. In doing samadhi practice, we don't want to be chasing all the little things around. Um, but when the tsunami comes, you know, we don't want to try to stuff that. We've got to deal with it. That's the weather system that comes through. That's the deal. And so we turn toward it directly with as much mindfulness and kindness as we can muster. And for some practitioners, there is that, there is that temptation to try to push the, push the strong hindrance away prematurely. You know, you've experienced some ecstatic state, some bliss, or if you read some things about this jhanic bliss, you kind of want it. You're not really aware of the wanting going on. So you're maybe pushing a little, jumping the gun on some of these energies and trying to shove them into a corner. Everyone goes through this. You're not alone, and we learn by doing. Um, even seasoned meditators have to work through this striving that comes up striving for these pleasant mental states. But really, striving, it's not that much of a big deal. It's just one of these adventitious visitors. It's just a little wanting up and active. And when the wanting is up, it's going to kind of joggle the Concentration, the concentration's gonna fall apart. No big deal. Learn a little lesson. Each time we learn a little more about striving. So if you're a big striver, don't worry about it so much. You'll learn the lessons and you'll have the bruises to prove it. Um, I can speak firsthand about that. Um, I'll relate you know, a, an experience I had. I guess it was about four years ago when Paul Sayadaw first taught at the Forest Refuge. And uh, I had been working with samadhi practice for a number of years with other teachers, and I was very excited about this, what I a person who I consider to be like the uber master in, in jhana practice coming here, and I was going to get to study with him. And, um, so I had really strong intention. I mean, I was ready. I was rested. I was been working my practice up, sitting longer and longer. I was. But what I learned later was that strong intention, um, as wholesome as it was, was masking really strong striving. So on, along about the fourth week of that retreat. Uh, my mind broke. It, it's the only way I can describe it. It literally broke. I was pushing so hard, trying to suppress every hindrance that moved into my phenomenological field. It was like 
it was like a hard drive crashing on a computer. It's like blank screen. I couldn't put two thoughts together. It was like the oxygen was sucked out of my brain. I couldn't function. I couldn't meditate. I couldn't even get it together to go for a walk or to ask for help. So I'm just lying there on my bed. About the only thought that I had was, gee, if this doesn't change, I'm in deep sneakers. So I I fell asleep eventually. Uh, I drifted off sleep and slept for a long time. When I woke up, uh, the ship had righted itself. I was back in the game. Uh, But I really learned and hopefully finally really learned at a deeper level the most important lesson there is in, in, in samadhi practice. And that's that relaxation is critical and that at attempting to suppress hindrances like I was doing will come back and bite you and it'll bite you hard. They can't be bypassed. These strong hindrance energies, they can't be bypassed. If they have significance to them, significant power, they have to be seen, understood, felt through, relaxed through. And any harshness or any repressing of them really is only violence. You're only doing violence to yourself. And we've said it a number of times, but the gateway to samadhi is through the cultivation of gentleness, non-judgment, patience, and relaxation. When you make that determination that a particular hindrance energy is strong enough, that it's not rootless or, or not, not rootless or wispy in any way, then you just you got to turn toward it and be with it as best as you are able. I want to make I want to do a sidebar here, a caveat. That at any time that you feel that you're entering anything that feels like terror, you need to stop and back out immediately and divert yourself. Um, because you're only reinforcing that kind of terror vortex. And if that means getting some tea, going out for a walk, a run, doing some yoga, taking a hot shower, finding a trashy novel, whatever it takes. Terror is not, sitting with terror, white knuckling with terror is not part of our meditation practice. So that's the caveat. Yes, we turn toward and we, we, we be with our experiences uh, as mindfully and with as much equanimity as we can. But if we make the judgment, and only you can make that judgment, If there is terror, uh uh-uh, no deal. Back out, divert, find a TV, whatever it takes. So recognizing what's going on, feeling the hindrance energy through, bringing accepting kindness to it, not pushing or pulling on it, letting nature take its course. 
You remember the story of the Buddha on, his, on the night of enlightenment? He's sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. And he had that famous archetypical encounter with Mara, uh, you know, the, the god of destruction. I want to read you a piece uh, from Joseph Campbell. Um, also, I took the liberty to put some commentary in it myself, so you might be able to tell the difference. This is from uh, Joseph Campbell's book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. The Bodhisattva placed himself with firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot and straightway was approached by Mara, the god of craving, hatred, and death. He's a heavy dude. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant carrying weapons in his 1,000 hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 leagues to the right, 12 leagues to the left, and into the rear as far as to the confines of the world. And for nine leagues high, the protective deities of the universe took flight. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with this crowd, not at all. But the future Buddha remained unmoved. Whirlwinds, rocks, thunder, flames, smoking weapons with keen edges. That's my favorite. Burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness, the antagonist Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gotama's ten perfections, wisdom, kindness, patience, perseverance, etc., Okay, a little setback for Mara. You know, tried the fear thing, and the dude just sat there. Nothing. But I've known him. I know he used to be, uh, you know, a pre, you know, a, he was a prince, and he was into a lot of pleasures. And I know where to get this guy. He's only a he's a thirty-five-year-old, virile, heterosexual male, and I know what to do now. So, Mara's next attempt. Mara then deployed the temptations of desire and lust by surrounding the Bodhisattva with voluptuous attendants. He conjured them all around. The Buddha could smell them, you know, the scents, the perfumes and everything. Just right there. Again, the mind of the great Bodhisattva was not moved. Okay, he's tried fear, he's tried desire. Mara not one to give up. He challenges the Buddha's right to be sitting there in this immovable spot. What right do you have? You're just a puny mortal in the face of a god, Mara. You have no right to be sitting there in this faked, you know, composed state. You're weak, you're flawed, you're inconsequential, you don't have a chance. You're not going to see clearly, you're not going to get anywhere with this. Give it up. Doubt. Doubt. Try to, try to sneak one in around, around the back of the Buddha. 
Buddha sits there. This time he takes his hand and he, and he touches, touches the earth with it. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred thousand roars and with, and with that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees paying respect to the future Buddha. Mara's army immediately dispersed and the gods of all worlds took notice. Okay, fear, lust, doubt, no problem. No, now our encounters with these energies are generally not so dramatic. <laughs> Whirlwinds, rocks, thunder, flames, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering, sand, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness. But given that most of us don't have the steadfastness of mind of Gotama, the energies that we experience are really no less difficult. So in this myth, an important aspect of our practice gets revealed. And did you notice that the Buddha, he didn't do anything overtly to combat Mara? You know, he didn't fight him, he didn't throw anything back at him. What he did was he took refuge in his powerful equanimity, his steadily patient mind, his very steady mind. So it was a very intense situation, just like when you're visited by these energies. The Buddha, the Buddha was perfectly aware of what was happening. He was feeling things, but none of it was sticking. He was experiencing fully, directly, but nothing was sticking. It was moving through. The original Teflon man. They used to say that about Ronald Reagan. But there's no comparison there. So experiencing deeply, experiencing deeply like this, but not getting tumbled and lost and identified in it, that's the razor's edge of your practice. To feel directly, but not thrashing around, trying to push away every, every little thing that feels uncomfortable or grasping onto everything that feels pleasant. That's your challenge. Read you another story, this one from, from uh, modern India. The story is told of a golf course in India. Apparently, once the English had colonized the country and established their businesses, they wanted some familiar recreation and decided to build a golf course in Calcutta. Golf in Calcutta presented a unique obstacle. Monkeys would drop out of the trees scurry across the course and seize the golf balls. <laughs> the monkeys would play with the balls, tossing them here and there. At first, the golfers tried to control the monkeys. Their first strategy was to build high fences around the fairways and greens. This approach, which seemed initially to hold much promise, was abandoned when the golfers discovered that a fence is no challenge to an ambitious monkey. Next. The golfers tried luring the monkeys away from the course. 
But the monkeys found nothing as amusing as watching humans go wild whenever their little white balls were disturbed. <laughs> In desperation, the British began trapping the monkeys. But for every monkey they carted off, another would appear. Finally, finally, the golfers gave into reality and developed a rather novel ground rule. Play the ball where the monkey drops it. <laughs> so can you play the ball where the monkey drops it? You know, and sometimes the monkey drops the ball in a very difficult emotion or a very painful physical sensation or, or a repeating thought loop or severe restlessness or chronic sleepiness or paralytic doubt. You know, and, and, and we don't know where these energies come from sometimes. And that's okay. Our practice doesn't need to know the content whether it's linked to early trauma, whether if you believe in past lives, whether it's linked to past lives, whether it's just the, your DNA expressing itself in some form. Just don't know. Whatever the cause, and one, one or more of these energies is powerful, they require our attention. You might want to push them aside, transcend them in some way, get on with the greater pursuits, but nature and liberation don't work like that. It requires a willingness to patiently, gently, and kindly receive those energies, to first become intimate with them, to pause and not be in such a big hurry to get rid of them. This from the Tao Te Ching. Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water. Yet in dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. The soft overcomes the hard. The gentle overcomes the rigid. Everyone knows this is true, but few can put it into practice. The soft overcomes the hard. The gentle overcomes the rigid. So this week we're practicing cultivating samadhi soft but steady. It's like drip, drip, drip. And eventually things begin to open. There's an acronym that um, may help you with working with these challenging energies when they come up. It's RAIN, R-A-I-N. First is just to recognize what's happening when it's happening. And in that recognition, we have immediately changed our relationship to it. We're no longer tumbled under. It's a different relationship. It feels different. That's the R. The A, accepting and allowing. Just accepting and allowing what's happening. Not grasping or pushing away. Just allowing the phenomena to play out. And then there's intimately investigating the eyes with a kind, always a kindly, non-harsh, non-judgmental countenance. Exploring, looking into the phenomena, watching it flower, 
you know, get intense, whatever, and then pass away. Coming to know it. These are in the times when we have to, when we're doing samadhi practice, and we, by necessity, have to turn ourselves towards something big. Finally, the end. Non-identification, non-ownership. If you've clearly recognized what's going on, you've accepted it, you've become intimate with it, you're just not going to identify with it so much. You're not going to feel so much ownership with it. So this, this recognition and gentle honesty, they're your allies in this practice. Seeing and being with what is. I want to share a couple things that have been helpful uh, to me in working, in working with these energies. One is, the, uh, one is developing the habit of withdrawing my energy from that object and placing it in myself somewhere. It's pretty simple. Here, here's what I mean. Okay, imagine you're on a retreat in some nice place. And one of the fellow, one of your fellow yogis is not observing noble silence very well. And in fact, isn't very courteous at all. They have a ski jacket that they continue to zip and unzip and zip and unzip, <laughs> you know, during, in the meditation hall. And then somehow they did this amazing thing where they had lead implants put in their feet. And so everywhere they walk, you can hear them, you know who it is, bam, 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 all right? And in the dining hall, that's when they get really mindful, slow way down as they're filling their plate. And not only that, they're, they, they have, they're, humming, they're doing this humming thing. And, it, and you're thinking, it sounds like Gilligan's Island, the theme from Gilligan's Island. Okay, so there you are. you might notice some annoyance rising. Maybe, maybe a little anger, maybe a lot. All right, so your attention's out on this person, you know. If you withdraw that energy completely to yourself and just rest in that full experience of what's going on, you inhabit the body fully, you're feeling the tightness you know, maybe your jaw is clenched, your muscles are contracted, maybe your pulse is slightly elevated. In the mind, you may hear through your internal speakers maybe some of those words you'd like to say out loud to this person, but you're not. Uh, there also may be memories, you get flooded with memories where other people have been disrespectful to you. There's a whole lot of things that are a whole constellation of experience. But you're no longer with the object you're, you've withdrawn your attention from the object. And so as you stay with it, you begin to notice that, you know, that they, they have their lifespan and they kind of they drop off. So you're not trying to apply any remedies right away. You're just, just a kindly presence. You're like the Buddha in that situation, sitting with Mara. Your Mara just happened to be this, this person. So it's pretty simple. I think you see how that works. Uh, another example uh, is food. I used to have the habit of eating late at night. Anybody ever have that habit in their lifetime? You know, 
I, I, um, and I knew it made for a lousy night's sleep. I wasn't dumb to all the science about eating late at night. But yet, I'd get fixated on a particular food, be kind of rumbling around late at night, I'd be tired. And I might think of some, oh, some, boy, some nice creamy yogurt, and I'll cut up a banana, or it could be something worse. Cut up a banana, put some maple syrup on it. I'm kind of fixated on it. But when I learned to withdraw my attention from that object of my desire and really see what was going on, what I most often discovered was, you know, I wasn't really hungry. I was lonely, or I was a little agitated. And then my challenge, like it is for the rest of my practice and working with some of these strong energies is, okay, can I be with this? This is what is. This is the weather. Can I be with it with some kindness? You know, just for this moment and this moment. And when I would just sit there and just be with what was, I didn't have to go eat that stuff. Now, you know, I have relapses, <laughs> for sure. But it's, it's nowhere near what it used to be. And it's all about withdrawing the energy from the object and sitting with the experience. Another strategy that I'm partial to is the, uh, what you might call utilizing the sensibility of spaciousness. I'll explain. All right, in fact, I'll, I'll use that last example you know, about the food. And so in that situation, I directly went to my, my internal experience pretty intensely you know, penetrating what was going on. Another way to approach that is to, um, uh, in feeling in addition to those emotions, or the constellation of emotions. Begin to feel the spaciousness that are surrounding that phenomena that is playing out. And so in that situation, yes, I'm feeling what's, what's happening internally. But maybe I'm hearing the hum of the refrigerator. Maybe I'm actually feeling the, the space in the room. Maybe I'm hear, hear, hearing some noises from the outside. Maybe I'm feeling the space outside the house. You know, and so I'm, and I'm still aware of what's going on, but it's held in a much larger pasture. You know, there's, there's that sensibility of spaciousness, that there is a vast infinite universe, solar, solar systems being born and dying. You know, all of this is happening. It's all known by this infinite capacity of awareness. And yeah, I've, I'm feeling lonely, and I may be agitated in some form, but it's held in a very large pasture. <coughs> uh, one of my favorite uh, conceptualizations is, is something I learned uh, in reading a, a 12th century Zen master named Shanul. And he had this concept, I think it's just so beautiful. He calls it tracing back the radiance. And, and what he means by that is that, first of all, you start wherever you are. Does not matter. Filled with hatred, just rocking and rolling with lust, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, allow it to be. 
receive those sensations like we've been talking about. And if, you, if you're able to stay with it in an open and kindly way, it's going to change. It's going to change because everything changes. There's nothing in creation that doesn't change. So it's going to change. And then it will open to something else. And so then you apply that same mindfulness and equanimity to that. And you're with that. It will also change. And you, and you move from one thing to the next. And dropping, dropping, experiencing, experience. And you eventually break open into, relax into this radiant presence. One of my hindrances de jure is planning. And I recognize that when I'm planning, if I, when I first recognize, oh, I'm planning. Anybody else do any planning? Probably not, right? <laughs> that there is some agitation with that. When I, when, I, when I pull myself away from whatever I'm planning, I can feel a little agitation. And if I can sit with that uh, with some calm, watching it change, exploring it, That'll often kind of become transparent, and I'll then experience fear. And if I can apply that same being with itness, that often will kind of clarify, become transparent. And what I'll, what I'll often see then in, and discover is a more primal fear right around survival. That this planning is related to, and some deep level in the reptilian part of the brain is somehow hooked into feelings of survival. Okay? And if I can stay with that, that primal energy, that on occasions or oftentimes will open into this kind of radiant sensibility that's colored with this really loving heart. And that's tracing back the radiance. That's what Chanel was talking about. And sometimes those clouds lift kind of quickly in that, and, and, and we, we fall through those levels quickly. But other times, it's just not going to happen that day. It's just too powerful, too obscure, no matter, tomorrow's another day. Ajahn Chah, just a few more minutes. You've been very patient. Ajahn Chah, the legendary time master, gives his flavor of tracing back the radiance. At, at, in, in this paragraph, these paragraphs, he muses on the nature of suffering. And he says, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering which leads to the end of suffering. The first is the pain of grasping after fleeting pleasures and aversions for the unpleasant, the continued struggle of most people day after day. The second is the suffering which comes when you allow yourself to feel fully the constant change of experience, pleasure, pain, joy, anger, without fear or withdrawal. The suffering of our experience leads to inner fearlessness and peace. This suffering of our experience leads to inner fearlessness and peace. 
when you undertake this practice of cultivating samadhi, you cultivate your relationship to all these variants, various hindrances. You come to know when to spend time with them, when to learn their secrets, and you come when to know to just put them gently aside. You dance as best you can with the challenges as they, as they appear. And as you trace back the radiance, what you realize is you're, you're really already there. This radiance is with you all the time. Our practice is really a way of reminding ourselves of this radiance. And our practice helps us navigate our way back home on a more regular basis. That's all we're doing. So I'll close with just a few lines from Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road. Pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating. Gently, but with undeniable will, divesting myself of the holds that would hold me. I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine. The north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. So let's just sit for a moment. I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine, and the north and the south are mine. I'm larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. Thanks for your attention. Have a few minutes for walking, 20 minutes or so, and then we'll gather again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.